Well, good morning, Harbin's Church. Uh, thank you for uh, for tuning in again uh, this morning, and uh, also just want to thank uh, Jordan for uh, always doing a great job uh, leading us in singing. I uh, just really, really appreciate that, and it just gets my heart ready to share the Word of God, and I think it gets the hearts of other people ready to hear the Word of God uh, as well. So thank you so much, Jordan, for that. Uh, we'll begin the the um, our time in the Word in just a few minutes, probably around 1110-ish, around that time. Just want to give folks uh, time to get over to this uh, this feed and, uh, and tune in. Um, just to let you know, uh, for those of y'all who are uh, members or regular attenders of Harbin's, um, I had a great uh, meeting with our deacons uh, yesterday, our deacons and my other elder, uh, Pastor Jared. Uh, we all got together and just started talking about um, uh, the topic of, of resuming uh, our public gatherings here at Harbin's Church. Um, as I think probably most of you know, the state of Georgia is slowly starting to uh, to reopen. And so it's, it's really time to begin uh, prayerfully considering that. And uh, just, just a couple of issues uh, that we are thinking through. One is, of course, the timing of us reconvening together for, for public gatherings, public worship, but also um, uh, in regards to just what it's going to look like initially when we get together uh, in regards to any kind of policies, guidelines, uh, you know, health precautions, uh, social distancing, all those sorts of things that just lots of churches are thinking through right now. We, we're going to have to think through as well. And um, uh one of the things that uh, that I and, and Pastor Jared and the deacons um, decided was that it was really important to hear from you all, from the members and, and regular attenders at Harbin's Church uh, in regards to um, just uh, your thoughts on uh, what things should look like when we get back together again, what you're comfortable with, what you're not comfortable with, just getting your input on that. And so <clears throat> we have uh, released a congregational survey and uh, it is on our, our website uh, at harvardschurch.org. Also, um, if you're on our email list, uh, you should have gotten that uh, as well, uh, a link to that survey. And we'd like to hear from you by the end of the day, Wednesday. Uh, so if you can, uh, it's not going to take long. There's, there's not a ton of questions on there, but there's a few key ones that we would love to get your input on. So uh, be sure to check that out uh, when you get a chance and, uh, and fill that out. Uh, anyway, thank you again for, for coming. We're going to begin our time in the Word in just a moment. Uh, feel free to uh, to make comments in the comments section uh, to greet one another. Feel free to use that to say amen uh, to, to, to aspects of God's Word that resonate with you as, we are, uh, as we're having a conversation this morning uh, about Ephesians chapter 5. And uh, that, that the amens encourage other people. They encourage me uh, as, as well. If, there's, uh, if God is really speaking to you, uh, feel free to use the, uh, the, the comment section there uh, just to praise God uh, for whatever you might hear. All right, so um, why don't you go ahead and take your Bibles and turn them with me now to the book of Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, we're in Ephesians chapter 5. And uh, there's, a, there's a saying that has uh, gained in popularity over the years, and maybe you have heard this saying, uh, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Have you heard that one before? It's gained a, gained a lot of traction uh, the, the past few years. Now, um, I don't totally agree with that quote because I actually believe that words are necessary. Um, the gospel, first and foremost, is not a lifestyle. It's an announcement. It's an announcement of what God has done in Christ. 
now, on the other hand, I do think that quote uh, is helpful in that it rightly reminds us that there is a certain type of lifestyle that is required of believers that should demonstrate something about the truth of the gospel. And I think some have gravitated, who've gravitated towards that quote, have done so because they are rightly concerned about Christians and churches that preach and preach and preach and preach, and yet they neglect their lifestyle. They don't practice what they preach. There's a contradiction uh, between their verbal gospel proclamation and their nonverbal lifestyle. How you live does matter. Uh, I, I've known people, and, and maybe you have seen people like this as well. They, they've got the Bible memorized, and they go to church, and they know the lingo, and they have all the answers, and they talk about Jesus all the time, and yet if you examine how they live their lives, especially Monday through Saturday in the home, uh, in the workplace, if you could peer into what's going on in the privacy of their own minds, they live lives that are in essence no different than unbelievers. There hasn't been any evidence of any radical change from before they became a Christian compared to now. Words are essential to the gospel, but our works matter too, because God is building a community that is not simply a community of preachers. Instead, he's building a community of people whose very lives are being transformed, uh, empowered by, and testifying to the reality of the gospel. Without our works, the words we preach will ring hollow in the ears of the world and the church, which according to Ephesians 3 is meant to display God's wisdom to the satanic powers, will instead be a source of mocking and scorn for those same evil powers. Now we are in continuing our, our series through the book of Ephesians called Identity Matters, and we've learned some amazing things about your identity so far. If, if you're a believer, um, uh, you have discovered that you are an ex-spiritual orphan. And that at that one time, you were alienated from God and, and from other people. And through the work that Jesus did on the cross, God has adopted you and reconciled you to other believers, regardless of race, regardless of background or any of that. So now you have a new father and you have a new family. And therefore, you become a new person recreated in Jesus Christ. And so uh, and therefore, you've got a new identity and a new lifestyle that goes with that identity. And for the past several weeks, we have been studying Ephesians chapter four, where Paul has been comparing the lifestyle of our old identity to the lifestyle that matches our new identity. And he's been using a clothing metaphor. Uh, Paul has been telling us uh, in the last chapter to put off the old, dirty, smelly, rotting garments, the lifestyle of our old identity, the lying, the anger, the stealing, the harsh words, the bitter resentment and the like and instead to put on the new clothes that match who we are now, the clothes of purity, truthfulness, integrity, grace-filled words, and a reconciling, forgiving spirit. And so as we move into chapter five, Paul is not done. He's not done telling you about uh, your new identity and the new life that you're supposed to live in response uh, to that identity and in response to the gospel. And as he shows us how we are called to be radically different, not just compared to our old self, radically different compared to the world. So let's continue together to, to hear what the Holy Spirit has to say to God's people this morning. Let's read the scriptures together. We're in Ephesians uh, chapter 5 now, Ephesians 5, and we're going to start uh, at verse 1 and, um, and read on down through verse 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, 
and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, covetous uh, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not associate with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what the what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we love your word. It is like food to the soul. And so, Father, I pray that you would fill us up this morning, that we would be satisfied with your teaching and that it might change our hearts and change our minds and change our lives. You've been working through your word in, in wonderful ways through the book of Ephesians these past uh, few weeks. And, uh, and we ask that you would do it again. Do it again in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's, uh, there's really three um, overarching observations that I want to make in this text this morning, three points. And the first one uh, is that, that uh, Paul is exhorting us to live as children of God in the world. Live as children of God in the world. Uh, right there in verse 1, uh, Paul says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, I'm the parent of three children, which means I have been the parent of three toddlers. Uh, it's been a while, but I do remember it. And one of the things I know about toddlers is that they will repeat anything you say and imitate everything you do. Children copy their parents. Now, that might be encouraging to you if you're self-confident and think you're doing great in the home. But if, if you're like me, <laughs> if you're like how I was when I was parenting toddlers, that, that idea is going to freak you out. Uh, there, there have been times that I have behaved in such a manner where uh, the last thing I want is my, any of my children copying what I do. Uh, but this is how children learn. They, they, they watch and they imitate. Uh, like it or not, for better or for worse, that's how it is. They copy what they see. Now, Paul here is saying that we are to be that way in regards to our heavenly father. We are to be, we are his children. And so we are to pay close attention to what the father does. And we are to imitate that. And he, and he tells us that specifically we're to imitate God by walking in love. But what does that look like? If you ask people what love is, and if you looked at the messages found in popular music and movies and TV and books and magazines, you're going to get all kinds of answers on what love is. 
But we don't actually have to wonder what Paul means when he tells us this, when, when he tells us to walk in love. He actually explains it clearly in the next verse. He says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So this is this is helpful. <laughs> love is ultimately not defined by Valentine's hearts or Cupid or roses. Love instead is defined by a blood splattered cross. Christ's self-denying, self-sacrificial death was the supreme demonstration of love for us. And, and if it is this type of love specifically that you and I are to imitate, it's a love that's 100% unconditional. We didn't earn God's love. We didn't deserve God's love. You know, sometimes, sometimes people will say, well, everyone deserves love. Bible never says that. Bible is very clear about what you deserve. And it's not love. It's hell. God didn't love us because we were lovable. God didn't love us because we loved him. God loved us even when we hated him, even when we despised him. God didn't love us because we treated him well. God loved us when we spit in his face and nailed his son to a wooden cross. All of us can love people who love us back. That's really easy. All of us can love whatever we regard as lovable or worthy. All of us love our friends. But Jesus says, if you love those who love you, and if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles, do not even the wicked people do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Not that Jesus expects that we're going to be perfect in this life before heaven, but essentially what Jesus is saying is what Paul is saying. Uh, be imitators of your Father who is perfect. Uh, Aim for his perfection. That's the target. That's the bullseye. Aim for that, for that kind of love. In fact, Jesus pushes further and says, even love those who despise you and persecute you. And, and so if we are to regard our enemies in this fashion, think about this. How much more should we be treating our brothers and sisters in Christ with this kind of love? This is important because this is primarily what's on Paul's mind first and foremost as he writes this book. He's writing this book not to scattered individuals, but to a local congregation. And, and he's thinking about how the local congregation is to interact with one another. And Paul expects the members of the church to walk in selfless, self-sacrificial love towards one another. And now we think that that's obvious. Well, of course we're supposed to love other people in the church. That's a given, right? Well, not when you see the garbage that happens in many churches. I mean, let's get honest about that. The division, the disunity, the anger, the hostility, the power plays, the backbiting, the gossip, the betrayal, the grumbling and complaining, the hostility that, that people have towards those in leadership in the church. And the hostility sometimes church leaders have towards those they are in authority over. I've seen all of that kind of mess go down in church life. And you probably have too. And some of us have probably even participated in those things that I just mentioned. And the sad thing is that we aren't the only ones who see that stuff go down. The world sees it also. And that matters. Because Jesus said, the world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus wants the world to not just hear what we say, but see what we do. 
in particular, see our love, not just our love towards the, the outside world, but towards one another inside the church. The Apostle John writes in 1 John uh, chapter 3, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and therefore we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. For the brothers, the other Christians in the church. Now, I'm pushing this point because sometimes, especially those of us who are uh, very evangelistically minded and very missions minded, uh, we're, we're very quick to warm up to the notion of laying down our lives for the lost in the world. And that's a great thing, right? We should all be that way. Uh, but are we as quick to lay down our lives, our interest, our convenience, our preferences for the brothers and love the brothers and the sisters as Jesus loved. I've been, I've been frankly appalled with how sometimes in churches, the people who clamor the most about outreach, who complain that their church doesn't do enough to reach the community, who bemoan that their church isn't engaged in global missions, are sometimes the same people who are cold and harsh and impatient and graceless and accusing towards their brothers and sisters in the church. And honestly, I don't want to hear about someone's passion for global missions or community outreach or evangelism for those outside the church walls if I'm not seeing you really loving and pouring out yourself self-sacrificially for the brothers and sisters inside the church, loving your fellow church members as Jesus did, seeking to die to yourself and to your own preferences, even at great personal cost to yourself for the sake of benefiting that brother or sister, laying down your life for them, walking in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And y'all, I, I have much room to grow in this area myself. As I, you probably heard me say before, I'm not some kind of ivory tower preacher who is just kind of sitting up here and I've got it all figured out and I've got it all together. This, this stuff hits me as well. And, and I hope it's hitting you and challenging you too. Now, Paul further helps us understand what walking in love means by showing us the opposite of Christian love. Love thinks about how to benefit other people no matter what the cost. The opposite of love is thinking about how to use people to satisfy our own personal cravings and lusts no matter what the cost. So, so first Paul tells us to live as children of God in the world, but now he moves on to tell us to live as people different from the world. Live as people different from the world. Look at verse three. But, see that but contrast, the, uh, what he was talking about earlier about, about the self-sacrificial love of, of Jesus. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for, be, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now, Paul is not saying there that, that, that anybody who has, uh, who has practiced those things is, uh, is going to hell. Uh, I mean, if, if that was the case, who, 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 would, who would make it out of hell? Uh, instead, he's talking about people who have, have given themselves over um, uh, without, without any kind of uh, re repentant heart or attitude. They've given themselves over to that kind of 
lifestyle. That, that's how an unbeliever lives. And this sexual ethic that Paul is holding out for us was a high standard for the first century. Ephesus was rampant with immorality and sexual promiscuity. Ephesus was the epicenter of the Artemis cult. Uh, you, you know, Artemis, right? The, uh, that, that was her Greek name. The, the Roman name uh, of the goddess was Diana. Uh, Artemis or Diana was regarded, uh, among other things, as a fertility goddess. And at her temple, prostitution was widespread and sexual activity and orgies was combined with worship. Ephesus was a very sexually charged city. And among those new believers in that church at Ephesus, there would have likely been ex-prostitutes and former practitioners of homosexuality and adultery and fornication. And Paul is telling this Ephesian church that they are now a new people and they are to be distinct from the culture around them. And really, Paul's words to the Ephesians could easily be words written to 21st century America, right? While Artemis worship has gone by the wayside, immorality rules the day in America, and we are no less sexually charged and obsessed than first century pagan Ephesian worshipers. And as the lifestyle of the Ephesians was to stand out in a perverse Roman world, so the lifestyle of believers today is meant to stand out in a culture that is giving itself over to debauchery. Now, that word that Paul uses for sexual immorality is the Greek word pornea. We, we get our word pornography from that, and it refers to a wide range of illicit sexual activity. And while God created sex as something good, a good gift to be enjoyed within the context of a covenant marriage between one man and one woman, the Bible is very clear that outside of that context, sex is sinful and destructive. I, I truly believe that there are few sins that are causing as much destruction in the lives of individuals and families and our nation as a whole than sexual sin. And this is a problem that is unleashing its devastation, not just in the world, but in the church. In my, in my nearly 30 years of ministry, it's hard to believe I've been doing this for that long, but in my <laughs> nearly 30 years of ministry, I have seen time and time and time and time and time again, the lives of men and women and husbands and wives and children and professionals and Bible college students and Bible college professors and pastors shattered due to sexual sin. Folks, Satan is having a field day with the church, battering and bruising it through this issue. And one of the main ways that he is doing that is through pornography. Uh, it's, it's, pornography today seems to be one of the main things that, that is fueling other types of, of, of sexual sin and, and perversions out there. Uh, the pornographic industry rakes in billions of dollars annually. By the time a child reaches the teen years, there's a very good chance that he or she has seen, already seen, thousands of explicit sexual images. And the average age of exposure, thanks to the near-omnipresent availability of the Internet, is getting younger and younger. A generation of young people whose brains have been pornified are entering into dating relationships and marriage, and they have been programmed and trained by this stuff, and it's killing a generation. 
And even setting pornography aside, we're being bombarded with movies and TV shows and music and inappropriate fashion that can easily stir up sinful and illicit desires leading to sexual sin and the privacy of the heart and of the mind or, or, or in just physically acting those things out. This is all the opposite of the love that God calls us to in verse one. While love is giving and self-sacrificial and all about serving others, the lust that Paul is telling you to reject, it's all about you. It's serving you. And, and, and so we are to be extremely radically counterculturally different in this area. So radical, Paul says, uh, that it's not enough to just refrain from sexual immorality. He says this kind of stuff must not even be named among you. In other words, you are to live lives of such obvious integrity that no one would even think of accusing you of that kind of activity. Now, let me just say this. If you're struggling with sexual sin and, and, and with an audience of this size, uh, there, there are probably a number of people who are watching right now uh, if not quite a few, uh, if you are struggling with sexual sin, could be pornography, could be infidelity, premarital sex, homosexuality, impure thought life, whatever. I want to encourage you to do something very radical and something that is very bold. Come out of the shadows. Come out of the shadows. Find a mature Christian that you trust. Confess your sins. Get prayer get help, get accountability. If, if, you, if you don't have anyone that you feel like uh, can help you, talk to me. Uh, if, if, if Reach out to me. If you're, if you're a woman, I'll help you find someone you can count on to talk with. I'll connect you with somebody that can walk with you through this issue because, folks, it is time to get serious. It's time to get serious. If, if this is a battle, call me ASAP. Let's roll up our sleeves and let's get to work killing the dragon together. Your pastors are here to help you. Pastor Jared is here to help you. I'm here to help you. We're not going to look at you like you're crazy. You know, I just I just can't share that stuff with anybody. They're just I don't know what they're going to think. We're not going to bite your head off. We're not going to ostracize you. We want to come alongside you. We want to love you. We want to help you by the power of the Holy Spirit to break break free from those things. And you can break free from those things in the power of the Spirit. I don't want us to be one of those churches where these kinds of issues are off topic, where these kinds of issues are just ignored and swept under the rug and, and, and just kind of tucked away in a corner while, while a host of people in the church are, are suffering in silence because nobody wants to talk about it. Nobody wants to deal with it and get real about it. I want Harbin's Church to be a safe place for people who are serious about putting sexual sin to death once and for all. We're not going to harshly judge you and condemn you. We're going to fight with you <clears throat> and fight for you and fight by your side. So keep that in mind. Verse 4, let there be <clears throat> no filthiness nor foolish talking, nor crude joking, which is out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. That's really interesting. Paul says it's not just about what we do sexually, but it's even about how we talk. Inappropriate talk, 
inappropriate sexual talk and, and joking takes something that is beautiful and wonderful and created by God, the, the sexual relationship, and it debases it and makes light of it. <clears throat> the relationship between the husband and the wife, we're going to learn later on in, in chapter 5, uh, is meant to mirror Christ's relationship with his bride, the church. And so to make light of these things through just uh, joking and crude language is really to make light of, of the gospel. This is a big deal. It's a, it's a it's a gospel issue. And um, and really, <clears throat> it's um, it's more than just about what comes out of your mouth. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 15, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person. He says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality. There is never an act of adultery. There is never an act of, of, uh, of sexual immorality. Uh, there is never an act of, of, of homosexuality that did not first begin and originate in something that's going on in here, even long before it's acted out out there. So if someone is constantly telling dirty jokes and has filthy talk coming out of their mouths, innuendos, double entendres, that sort of thing, should be a red flag about issues in that person's heart. Your outward talk and behavior are reflections of the desires of your heart. And it is in the deepest desires of your heart where we find what we ultimately worship. That's why in verse three, Paul links sexual sin and covet. He links, excuse me, he links sexual sin with covetousness. And in verse five, he defines covetousness as idolatry. Interesting. Now it's idolatry because the thing that you covet is more important to you than God, and anything that is more important to you than God is your God. It's your idol. You don't have to worship an Artemis statue like the Ephesians did to be an idolater. All you have to do is give yourself over to porn or lustful thoughts. What you chase after for ultimate satisfaction and what dominates your life is the thing that you worship. But as usual, Paul doesn't simply tell us how not to live. He also tells us how we should live. Paul says in verse 4 that in place of sexual immorality, let there be thanksgiving. One of the ways you're going to fight idolatrous lusts is through thanksgiving to God. Coveting and thanksgiving don't mix. You can't covet and be genuinely thankful simultaneously. In Thanksgiving, we are grateful for what God has given us, and we appreciate his blessings, and we appreciate and trust his boundaries, and we believe that in God we have more than enough, and therefore we're content. In coveting, there's a lack of these things and a lack of belief that all we need is in Jesus Christ. We're not really believing what we were singing earlier, all I have is Christ, and, and, and singing that with a, with, a, with a joy and a sense of, of fulfillment and completion. As the Christian walks in radical, self-sacrificial love, as the believer takes a stand for sexual purity to the point where we won't even laugh at crude, the crude jokes of unbelievers, as we live lives characterized by gratitude and thanksgiving, even in difficult times, folks, we're going to seem strange to the world. We're going to seem strange to the world. 
uh, as sexual immorality becomes more common, more accepted, more applauded. And by the way, it's hard to believe how it can become more accepted than it is now. But 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 I think there probably still are a, a few pockets, a few forms of sexual morality that maybe are, are shunned now, but eventually will be openly uh, accepted and received. It's always kind of this, this slippery slope. As those things become more common and, and applauded, Christians who are living as Christians are going to seem weird and even freakish to some people. And that's okay. That, in fact, that's actually how it should be. The believer is meant to be radically different. We are meant to stand out and be light in a dark world. And that is my final point. Uh, so first Paul says, live as children of God in the world. Then he exhorts us to live as people different from the world. But then finally, he, he challenges us to live as light for the world. Live as light for the world. Verse 8, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Now, in the Bible, darkness often represents evil, ignorance, foolishness, impurity. <clears throat> in that vein, the Bible depicts the world as plunged into darkness. Light, on the other hand, represents holiness, truth, wisdom, knowledge, purity, and, and all those things are wrapped up in who God is. The Bible says that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And so it stands to reason that if we've been adopted by God, then that makes us children of light. Now, did you know that, Christian, about your identity, that you're a child of light? Is that something that has, has regularly gone through your mind? You wake up in the morning thinking, I'm a child of light. Most of you probably don't think that way. Paul wants us to know this about ourselves, that we are children of light. And notice here that Paul doesn't just say you were in darkness. Paul says you were darkness. Uh, that was uh, that was your old former identity. And so now you're light. And if you are light, what in the world does that mean then for you? Well, think about light. What do you do with, with light? You shine it. And Jesus says, let your light shine before others. Your walk, your lifestyle will be different than the world's. It will stand out. And as our light shines and stands out through our words and through our works, it exposes the darkness in a sinful world. That's why Paul says in verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Now that exposure can have two effects. One of those effects is negative, that the light you shine will cause those in darkness to, 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 to be repelled and they're going to hate you. Some of you know exactly what this is like. You have uh, non-Christian friends or family members or, or co-workers or, or other unbelievers you engage with. And, and, and when you are obviously living the Christian life around them, they get really nervous and they get really uncomfortable around you. Some may even express contempt for you. Uh, there's there's going to be people who won't like being around you as you're living for Jesus. Now, why is that? Because... As you imitate the holiness and purity of God in your life, as that light is coming forward in your words and in your works, it's going to expose their wickedness. It's going to make them feel guilty around you. You think about the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. 
Cain murdered his brother. Why? The Apostle John says in 1 John 3 that he murdered his brother because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. And then John says, do not be surprised then, brothers, that the world hates you. Abel was walking in the light. He was, he, he was walking as light. He was living a righteous life. And day after day after day, that light was exposing Cain for what he was, which was a hypocrite. And Cain couldn't stand to be around Abel because of that penetrating light. So guess what he did? He snuffed it out. He extinguished the light. Jesus says in John chapter 3 that people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And so we, we then could ask the question, well, what's the point then? What's the point of shining the light? Well, that's where that's what Paul gets to in verse 13. And this is the other effect that shining the light has. It, it has a positive effect also. He says in verse 13, when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Here Paul gives the image of the light coming into dark places and the light is overcoming the darkness. He says when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Some translations say manifest. Uh, the idea is that these things now become clear. You see, the light of Christ that we shine makes things clear. It dispels the ignorance and the confusion of the darkness. This is one of the reasons why we have to expose the unfruitful works of darkness. If we're shy, if we're timid, if we don't have the courage to bring the light to people who hate it, if we try to be Christians that fly under the radar and hide our light under a basket, as Jesus says not to do, then, then what's that going to mean for the world? It's going to mean that the world remains in darkness. You see, some people, some Christians, and some churches may say, well, I just, I just want to love people. I, I don't want to be about just exposing sin. I don't want to confront sin. I don't want to preach the exclusivity of Christ for salvation and offend people. I don't want to shine the light of what the Bible says about sexuality to a culture that embraces gay marriage and transgenderism. I don't want to stand out in a way where my lifestyle just looks weird and strange to people and just people are going to get mad at me and call me names and all of that. I just want to fit in and just get along and just kind of blend in. And then I'm just going to love them to Jesus by being nice. Now, if that's you, you're not loving them to Jesus. What, what, what did we just read in verse 5? People who are engaged in the unfruitful works of darkness have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. The wrath of God, Paul says, is coming to such people. That means that, that their, their inheritance, not being the kingdom of Christ, is hell. That's their inheritance. The wrath of God. It's, it's eternal suffering in a place that Jesus calls outer darkness, where there is no light, and there is only weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a darkness without end. And so to refuse to shine the light of God, the light of truth, the light of the gospel into a dark world is not to love the world, it's to hate it. It's to leave the world in darkness and ignorance. It, it's to not be clear. In contrast, Paul says, when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. It becomes clear. Folks, we're not exposing the works of darkness to be mean, to, to, to just be harsh. We're exposing 
we're exposing these things to bring clarity and dispel an ignorance that is destroying people. It's why why it just um just discourages me so much to have just just churches or, or folks that claim to be churches that are like, well, I'm not going to address the sexuality issue with people. I'm not going to address uh, address the uh, uh, the issue in regards to homosexuality or transgenderism. Uh, you know, we, we're, we're just going to kind of we're going to love people and, and, and be kind and, and all those sorts of things. We're not going to talk about those things. Uh, I'm what I'm saying, what I think scripture is saying is that that's actually the most hateful thing that that you can do because all you're doing is 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 endorsing and affirming a way of life that is sending people to God's wrath that is cutting them off from the inheritance of God the Father cutting them off from the kingdom of Christ is there any more hateful thing that you could do than to to refrain from giving somebody a message that will give them access to the kingdom of God so I agree with John Calvin, who in his Ephesians commentary considers verses 13 and 14 to be lovingly evangelistic in its intent and flavor. Calvin writes that unbelievers must be reproved, that being brought forth to the light, they may begin to acknowledge their wickedness. Paul, therefore, Calvin continues to write, represents Christ as uttering a voice which is constantly heard in the preaching of the gospel. And what is that voice and where is that preaching? It's in verse 14, where Paul says, Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Paul is saying that the light that you have, the light of Christ, can transform others into light as well. Awakening dead sinners, bringing them to spiritual life. Indeed, this rousing from slumber, this awakening is reminiscent of what Paul's already told us in Ephesians, that we were indeed dead in our sins and trespasses, but now we have been raised to newness of life. Many Bible commentators suggest that Paul here is quoting a line from an Easter hymn sung by the early church. It's an invitation. It's an evangelistic appeal for the sinner in the congregation that's just sitting there. It's an appeal to him to wake up and receive Christ's salvation. Now, that might be the case, but it's even more certain to me that Paul here is alluding to Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 3, where the prophet writes, Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise among you and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. I love those verses. John MacArthur rightly notes that that Paul here shows the prophetic meaning of those Isaiah texts by declaring that the glory of the Lord that has risen upon his people is none other than Jesus Christ. And so Isaiah 60 shows us that as God's glory is seen in God's people, as Christ is seen in God's people, as their words and works are imitating and reflecting the brilliant character of God, the nations will come to that light, people from every tribe and tongue and language. And how? How, how do they come to the light? How do former Christ haters and lovers of darkness, indeed people who were darkness, 
come to the light and become light? Answer, God. God does a work in them. God essentially turns on the light in them. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness. He's alluding there to the creation account in Genesis as he's talking about the new creation now. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so while the light that God shines through you will repel many, there are many others who may come, and they themselves will become light. And so Calvin writes, let us therefore endeavor to rouse the sleeping and dead that we may bring them to the light of Christ. The commission that God has given you and me, the commission that God has given Harbin's church is essentially the exact same commission that Jesus gave the apostle Paul in Acts 26, where Jesus said to him, I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. That's your job description, church. And of course, none of this can happen through our own power, but it happens through the power of God. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Faith is awakened in a people who are lost in darkness through the power of the word of Christ, which you're supposed to speak to them. Preach the gospel. And if necessary, use words. Yeah, the words are necessary. But but the Ephesians 5 lifestyle, as we're living as children of light, that lifestyle backs up those words. And so as we, the church, engage with a world in darkness with his words, words supported by his works in us, and with his glory upon us, as it says in Isaiah 60, as we imitate him, the nations shall come to that light and kings to the brightness of that rising glory, as Isaiah wrote about. That is exactly what God has been doing through the church for 2,000 years, and he continues to work in that way today. The question is, will you and I, Harbin's church, be a part of what God is doing? Will we be light bringers, living in this way, speaking in this way, with the end goal of sleepers being awakened and the dead being raised to newness of life? Now, of course, God isn't calling you to do something that he himself has not already done. Going back to Isaiah not Isaiah 9, uh, Isaiah says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to a world enveloped in blackness. He came as a great light of the world, a brilliant, shining, blazing torch, piercing the darkness. He came imitating his heavenly Father. He said, whatever the Father does, I do. And, and, and though he was in the world, he wasn't of the world, and so he lived differently than the world. Jesus didn't fit in. 
He didn't fit in with the obviously immoral. He didn't steal. He didn't descend into drunkenness. He didn't engage in sexual immorality. Filthy talk didn't come out of his mouth because his heart was pure. And so his outward behavior was pure. So he didn't fit in with the obviously immoral. But guess what? He also didn't fit in with the religious establishment who had the appearance of morality, but inward their hearts were full of all kinds of sin and corruption. Jesus did not conform to either of them. He didn't conform to the ways of this world. He didn't try to blend in. He didn't try to earn the applause of man and get everyone to like him. His words and his works contrasted with the obviously wicked and his lifestyle exposed the hypocrisy of the religious establishment of those who appeared to be moral. And so he was light coming into a dark world that was bound up in sin, a world that was under the just condemnation of God because of their sins. The Bible says in John chapter one, the true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. As that brilliant, blazing light penetrated the darkness, the world could not stand it. But it did not deter Jesus, because he came on a rescue mission for the very people that hated him. Isaiah 42 speaks of one to come who is a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, the, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. The image there is of a warrior invading the stronghold of an enemy, sword in one hand, blazing torch in the other, delving deep into the dungeons of his foe and breaking open the prison doors to release those captive, those enveloped in the darkness. But his enemies could not tolerate being exposed in the light of Christ. And so they sought to snuff out that light by hanging him on a cross. And what they did not know was that that was all a part of the plan. Jesus invaded the very heart of darkness by giving himself up to the darkness. When he was arrested, Jesus said to his enemies, this is your hour, the hour of darkness. But he also said, this is my hour. Now, why? Why did he do that? And why did he why did he give himself up to the darkness in that way? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He gave him up to be killed. Why? To take the sins of a dark world upon himself. Indeed, as he hung on the cross, Mark 15, 33 tells us that that darkness blackened the whole land for three hours. That that darkness representing the divine judgment of God, judgment poured out not on Jesus's enemies but on Jesus. This was the genius of the divine plan. The sins of the world punished in him because he who knew no sin became sin. The darkness tried to snuff out the light, but the darkness has not overcome it. And three days later, having paid the full price for sins, he rose from the grave. And as a result, those who did receive him those who believed in his name, those who would step out of the shadows and come to the light, God gave them the right to become children of God so that they would not perish being cast into the outer darkness forever, but instead would receive eternal life. That's the message of the gospel. And through this gospel, he has been pulling people out of the darkness ever since. Until 2,000 years later, you're sitting here this morning as a believer because somebody brought the light of the gospel to you. 
and you heard his words and you believed. And, and you who believe are described by the apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2, 9 as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In other words, the purpose of God saving you was not just for your own sake, but so that the light that was brought to you may now be carried by you that you might proclaim him, proclaim his excellencies to those in darkness, invading the enemy stronghold with that, that light, exposing the works of darkness, making them visible. Some will reject that light, but others will come. Others will come, but they will only come if there is a light to show them the way. Jesus said in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, in the same way, Harbage Church, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So preach the gospel and use words and live out works that back it up. And spread his light so that more people may be saved, so that more sleepers might be awakened, so that more dead people may rise, so that more glory can go to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. And thank you so much that you invaded the strongholds of the enemy and you drug us out of the darkness and you set the captives free and you took blind eyes and you opened them. And so now we see, now we have light, now we believe. Thank you for your kindness and your love and your mercy. And so Father, in response to that, I pray that you would help us to be imitators of God, to be imitators of you and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Help us to have that, that, that deep, unselfish, self-sacrificial, self-denying love for those outside of the church, and for our brothers and sisters inside the church. Forgive us for our lovelessness and help us to be better imitators of you. Father, help us to, to, to put off the things of, of sexual immorality and, and, and impurity, things that the world is completely giving itself over to. Father, help us to stand out Help us to be refreshingly different. Help us to have a, to have a, a better way to show people a, a, a better path. Help us to shine the light of truth into a dark world, knowing that we're going to receive barbs in the process, but also knowing that others will see that beacon and you will bring them forward to embrace it. Help us to live as children of light, not just for our sake, but for the sake of of the world and for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.